0: 8th of July, 1853, four huge smoke-breathing ships arrived to the shores of Uraga, a small coastal town on the Izu Peninsula near Tokyo, and changed the course of Japanese history forever. I mean, hi! (laughs) Hello and welcome to Japan Explained! I wanted to make an unexpected romantic entrance this time, well, I'm clearly bad at that, Because that's exactly what happened when four light ships arrived on the shores of Uragaza day. Nobody in Japan was expecting them, nobody had seen anything like them. Or had someone. Anyway, the news spread throughout the country and people were talking about Kurofune, the black ships of the foreigners. So let's take a look at the 10 short days that changed the course of Japanese history, the arrival of the black ships. And today I'm not alone. Presenting the American side of events is Garrett McCorkle from the No Country for History podcast. On the show he talks about lesser known episodes in American history and I invited him to clear his side of the story as opposed to the Japanese narrative, which I am more familiar with. Before we return to the moment of the arrival of black ships, let's look at the state of the two countries, Japan and the United States, just before the incident. As for Japan, it was peacefully spending its third century of the Edo period. The emperor resided in Kyoto, while the regal power, the Tokugawa shogunate, or Tokugawa bakufu, ruled from the base city of Edo. The country led a self-sufficient lifestyle, Simple but stable, and one of the factors that allowed Japan to have such a peaceful time was the fact that it had been self-isolated for more than 200 years. Japan worked carefully on its closed country policy. Beginning in 1612, the doors to the country were slowly closing until they were finally shut in 1639 leaving a narrow, tiny cat door for Chinese and Dutch merchants to visit the port of Nagasaki. For the next two centuries, Japan successfully managed to isolate itself from the outside world while enjoying the luxuries it could provide. Dutch ceramics, spectacles or brightly colored cotton could be bought in shops in Edo and Osaka, scientific books, simulated interest in Western medicine and art, and inventions such as clocks and telescopes found their way into the daily lives of the rich. The Dutch also fulfilled an important role in providing the Japanese government with a digest of what was happening in the world. But the Japanese government and the intellectual elites did not represent the ordinary people. For example, in the mid-19th century, the average Japanese had never seen a map of the world knew nothing of the existence of the United States or of the Industrial Revolution that was rapidly changing the world and speeding it up with steam engines, railways and telegraphs. Most people in Japanese cities could read, but they had nothing to read about the world. But what about the Americans? What did they know about Japan at the time? I know that Dutch wrote about Japan come for Sandberg, Zebold wrote about it in great detail. Did people in the USA read their books? Garrett?
1: So people in the United States were pretty aware of Japan as a, as a country, as a place. And it was very closely linked with China. Because around this time in um, the early 1850s, late 1840s, we're seeing a lot of other Western powers imperializing over uh, China. And these were closely linked. But this entire time, Americans are getting a picture of Japan through Western eyes. Japan, especially, is portrayed as this very exotic place that is very stagnant. It has not improved a whole lot throughout the course of history. And this is sort of the Japan that most Americans are seeing. But remember, they're still getting it through this Western lens, right? Through this eyes of of people quite frankly in the 1840s and 1850s think of themselves as the pinnacle of civilization so you have to always take that into account but at the end of the day the average american would have known about japan and would have seen it as a highly exotic place like unexplored untouchable almost
0: so what were the expectations what did they think the japanese would be like
1: as i said earlier these expectations are a sort of backwards people, uh, a group of people that haven't really changed a lot over time. And this feeds into the larger movement around the time, something that we call scientific racism. This idea that scientifically you could prove that one race of people was superior to another, particularly Leno and Blumenbach, who were European scientists around this time, scientists with air quotes. But at the end of the day, these writings were very influential. So they had largely broken up the world into three or four races of people, groups of people. You had the Caucasian race, white Europeans, the black race, everybody in Africa. And this other category that was called mongoloid, which if you know what the connotations of that term, it's very negative terminology, which largely grouped the people of East Asia and the native people of North and South America together. To a lot of people in the West, they're getting this sort of view of Japan in a similar way that they would have early Native American people as people that were a little resistant to change. This is how they're, they're portraying them, which you know is extremely ridiculous to think about. But that's how a lot of people would have seen it at the time. They had no concept really of early Japanese history that could disprove this stuff, right? Because at the end of the day, they're getting their knowledge about Japan and Japanese people from other Westerners who have a pretty strong bias um, to portray themselves a certain way.
0: Which brings us to Perry's expedition. But this was not the first attempt by the Americans to make contact with Japan, was it?
1: No, there had been a few attempts before to go to Japan. There were a few American ships as early as 1797 that had gone to Japan to try to open trade negotiations. There were a few American businessmen, individuals as well that went. And I'm pretty sure the first formal expedition was in 1846. This would have been President James K. Polk. He sent a um, Navy commander named James Biddle to go to Japan. Basically, it was a it was a nudge to start trade negotiations. And uh, Commodore Matthew Perry, the orders he receives from President Fillmore are almost identical to the ones that James Biddle received from President Polk. Except, as we'll see in a little bit, Matthew Perry was given authorization to use force if necessary. Biddle was told to only use force in self-defense. So America had been trying for a while to expand into East Asia to open up its sphere of influence before this moment.
0: And why was that important to the US?
1: You have to imagine America's position at around this time. They are still an extremely young country, probably the youngest, and they have something to prove. In the 1840s, America is really looking to expand westward on the North American continent, By 1848, um, America has successfully won a war against Mexico, has acquired a bunch of land in what is now Southern California, New Mexico area, the, the American Southwest, they just acquired that through force with Mexico. The United States is trying to prove itself on the world stage because around this same time, right, you have the other great Western powers, Britain, France, Russia's thrown in the mix too. They are colonizing, imperializing China. And America sort of feels a little left out, I guess you could say. America wants to establish itself as an imperialist power. And quite frankly, Japan comes with the assumption that conversation about slavery will not be involved, which around this time in the early 1850s, I mean, it's about to tear the United States apart westward expansion in the United States had really brought along with it the question of, are these states going to allow the enslavement of Black people or not? With Japan, you can avoid that question. So a lot of Americans were were pretty on board with this. Because it, there wasn't necessarily the assumption that America would completely take over Japan, but that America would very strongly guide Japan to do what it wanted. And that comes out in the final treaty, which we'll see eventually. But at this time, Japan seemed like a good way for America to expand beyond its own borders. And also at the same time, America was having quite a few issues with uh, Japan diplomatically. America had a huge whaling business in the Pacific Ocean. um, And there have been a few diplomatic incidents with Japan involving shipwrecked sailors um, that didn't turn out quite the way America would have liked. So that, that's another driving factor too, right? To protect its own trade and commerce while also expanding into a, into a world imperialist power on par of Britain or France.
0: The new American mission to Japan was announced to the world some 12 months before its departure, but while it was discussed with great interest in both America and Europe, the general opinion was that the mission would prove fruitless. Franz von Siebold, a German physician and scholar who had worked at the Dutch factory in Nagasaki in the 1820s, wrote to a friend My mind accompanies the expedition. That it will be successful by peaceful means, I doubt very much. Without my presence, Siebold forgot to add. After all, he had applied for the post of interpreter for the mission and was rather unhappy to be turned down. He, of all the people, should have known that his presence could harm the mission as much as it could serve it. In 1828, he had run into trouble with the shogunal authorities when he tried to take maps of Japan out of the country. And the Japanese government would not easily forget such an incident. So, as not to jeopardize the mission, Perry hired a fellow American, Samuel Wells Williams, instead. Williams had never been to Japan before and made it very clear to the commander that his knowledge of Japanese was, well, to say the least, insufficient. Instead, Williams was quite confident in his Chinese. He was an experienced translator and writer, and it was therefore decided before departure that the languages of communication would be Chinese and Dutch rather than English and Japanese. On 24th of November, 1852, the mission finally left U.S. and traveled to China, stopping in Naha, the capital of the Ryukyu kingdom, at the end of May. While in Naha, the mission lost their assistant Chinese interpreter, who was an opium addict, so they had to go back to China and get a new one. And finally, after another stopover in the Ryukyu, Perry left Naha for Japan on the 2nd of July. Now let's look at what was happening on the Japanese side all this time. And it seems nothing was. Even though the Dutch has been warning the Japanese authorities since the 1840s that the moment was approaching when the policy of isolation could no longer be pursued without danger to the country. The intercourse between the different nations of the earth is increasing with great rapidity. An irresistible power is drawing them together, Through the invention of steamships, distances have become shorter. A nation preferring to remain in isolation at the time of increasing relationships could not avoid hostility with many others. Wrote in a letter to Japan, King of Holland. And since the United States' intentions were no secret at all, the Dutch informed the shogunal government of the mission in 1852. An additional note was sent later that year, giving full details of the American expedition. Finally, in summer, news arrived from the Ryukyu Islands that American ships were leaving the Kingdom of Japan. Since receiving the first notes, Bakufu has had the whole year to prepare. But did they? The government knew exactly how many and what kind of ships would be arriving, as well as their intentions to arrive in Edo and their objectives. But it was a very secret matter. Only the chief counselor Abu Masahiro and a few other high-ranking officials knew about it. And as far as I could tell, the only thing they were doing was building a few daiba around Edo Bay. Which was good, because a daiba was a kind of small fort where you could put some cannons against invaders. But it proved to be completely ineffective. And there was no plan B. Early in the morning, July the 8th, American ships were spotted by fishermen who immediately informed the magistrate of Uraga in Shimoda. Magistrate Toda Yoshi sent a letter to the Uraga office saying that two large and two smaller foreign ships had been seen moving towards the shore of Uraga. Around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, the squadron dropped anchor off the town of Uraga, on the western side of the Bay of Edo. The choice was simple. The Japanese government forbade foreign ships to go further, so there were no modern maps of the area, and it was dangerous to continue. As they approached, two guns were fired from a neighboring fort and a cloud of smoke in the air, indicating that the signal rocket has been fired. Japanese guardboats, each carrying about 30 men, then approached the ships. They attached ropes to the ships and attempted to climb aboard. Commodore Perry ordered his sailors to cut the guardboard's ropes and use spikes and cutlasses to keep the Japanese away. The man really did his homework. These and many other decisions made by Perry were based on the negative experiences of other American commanders in the past. Perry also decided that until negotiations were successful, he would not allow more than three officials on board at any time and would not speak directly to anyone except the most important emissaries of the Emperor. So Anton Portman, Perry's Dutch-Japanese interpreter, came on deck. He explained that the Commodore allowed only the highest officials on board his ship And when a man in the board introduced himself as the vice-governor of Uraga, he was allowed to come on board. The man's name was Nakajima Sabrosuke, and he was only a minor official, but he looked confident and well-mannered, so no one tried to question his status. Lieutenant John Conte was ordered to speak to Nakajima. Conte explained that the commodore's intentions were friendly and that no, the squadron won't go to Nagasaki. No, never, really, n- no. They would not go to Nagasaki. So Nakajima had to leave without much success, promising that a higher official would come to see Perry the next day. Meanwhile, people gathered on the shore to see the ships. Many described them as moving castles, Or as big as mountains, but as swift as birds. But one thing they all had in common was that they were monstrous black ships belching smoke. And that's how they entered the history. At 9pm cannons were fired at the ships. This frightened the people on the shore. Many ran away from the harbor in panic. But as soon as the locals understood that the cannons were not loaded, They began to enjoy the daily firing like a weird kind of firework. They even wrote a funny poem about it. Linguistic side note here. Uh, Jokisen, used in the poem, was a brand of a high-quality green tea from Uji. So the literal translation would be just four cups of good green tea and you won't be able to sleep at night. But Chokisen is also a reading for the word steamship. Since ships were counted with the same suffix hai as cup, we get just four steamships and you won't be able to sleep at night. This implies that the arrival of the ships caused a great deal of excitement but it seems that people were more curious about them than scared. Around 10 p.m. the letter from the magistrate of Uraga finally reached Edo. It is received by Ido Hiromichi, who rushes to show it to Abe Isenokami Masahiro, the chief senior councillor, a sort of prime minister of his time. The next morning, at dawn, the Americans were surprised to see a boatload of artists near Paris' flagship, the Susquehanna, They were busy making detailed sketches of the ships and any crew they could see. Within a week, pictures of the black ships and hairy barbarians were being hawked in the streets and sold in shops. They were also reproduced on souvenir banners, scrolls, fans and towels. And it's easy to see how sensational it was, while the people on these ships were not the first foreigners to enter Japan, the memory of missionaries traveling around the country in the 16th century was long forgotten. And Dutch merchants in Nagasaki were so rarely seen outside their tiny island that they were spectacular living in Nagasaki itself. Nor should we forget the difference in the education of people. While scientists, doctors and higher-ranking samurai Had at least some knowledge of Dutch studies, the common people didn't read many serious books, but loved all kinds of legends and ghost stories. Surprise, surprise, the foreigners in them were not the good guys. They were culturally and morally inferior and with their red fur and bulbous or beaked noses and claws for hands, they looked very much animal-like. They were also rumored not to wash every day and to show anger in public. Eh, with barbarians. And that's exactly what we see in the famous early drawing of Perry. The person who drew it clearly didn't see the man. The creature in the portrait wears the clothes of a high-ranking Japanese official and looks just as described in the old tales. An animal-liked, red-haired, long-nosed, angry foreigner. Perry's face in this image also bears a striking resemblance to that of a Tengu. A fierce mountain creature, known for its strengths and fighting skills. Truly, someone to be feared. Do you happen to know if Perry saw his portrait? What do you think he thought of it? He didn't look his best on it, but I dare say it gave him a positive image, kind of. You don't joke with Tengu.
1: So from what I can gather, I'm unsure if Perry himself saw this portrait, but it's commonly used in history classes today to show how Japanese people viewed Westerners. Because most of the time you're getting a Western perspective of Japan, and it's a little rare in popular history, which almost is always assumed associated with Western history, that you get the other side of that. So. In this drawing, as you mentioned, they focus on prominent features like really big ears, really big nose. As you correctly point out, whoever made this was relying on secondhand accounts of what he looked like. They even, uh, this is something I find is really funny. I'm assuming that they were told he had blue eyes and they actually cover, like they color in the whites of his eyes as blue instead of the pupils being blue, which is really interesting. But to a certain degree, and this is kind of my own guess here, but this portrait sort of reflects the the way that the Japanese must have viewed Perry coming in. He's coming in with force. He's coming in very big, brash. Um, those black ships were quite a spectacle. And they wanted to highlight that in his features, right? Now, I'm not, like I said, I'm not entirely sure if this got a lot of circulation back in America. I highly doubt it did but it's a very interesting portrait nonetheless.
0: So it actually made its way into American textbooks now?
1: Oh yes, at least at the college level. The classes that I took, we very, very focused on this portrait. Like I said, it shows you quite a bit because especially um, historiography, and that's essentially how history or the way that you talk about history has changed over time. The historiography typically has shown especially when talking about East Asia, the West acts and then the East reacts that they don't do anything until the West does something to them. And that's bad history, right? There, these people are constantly doing things. They're reacting. Um, they're acting on their own, right? Um, it's not just because of the West doing something to them. And this portrait is typically shown that way. They are creating an image of somebody that is new to them, in their own culture, using their cultural practices to show and and spread awareness of a figure that that is very new. Uh, People in America are doing the same thing.
0: But Perry's portrait was not the most confusing thing the people of Edo saw that morning. Signs and newspapers announcing Kurofuna's arrival could be seen all over the capital and nearby towns. The problem was that while some of them tried to stick to the facts, the others tried to calm the population. Some papers claimed the beginning of war and there was no shortage of samurai eager to take part in some military action. Though during the centuries of peace, many of them didn't even know how to put on their armor properly. Fortunately, they could rely on manuals like Kachu Yoshinan, which covered every step from putting on Yofundoshi underpants. Rumors, which had already begun to spread before the news, did not help either. The number of ships quickly increased, and it was said that Americans were already on Japanese soil, heading for Edo. Many panicked, packing their belongings and preparing to leave their homes at moment's notice. Others were more suspicious, as the savage barbarians from the stories couldn't possibly built something as big and fast as the black ships described. But the Americans on the ships didn't know about all the commotion they had caused in Edo. They could only observe some of it in Uraga, where people were strictly told to pretend that nothing had happened. Soon the boat approached the squadron with the governor of Uraga on board, dressed in formal attire. The man called Kayama Eizaemon, who wasn't of very high rank and certainly not the governor of Uraga, asked to speak to Peri, but didn't get an audience. So instead, we had the second round of talks. Please go to Nagasaki. No, we won't. We are here to deliver the president's letter to the emperor. As the conversation went nowhere, Kayama promised to send a note to Edo, asking for someone of the appropriate rank to come and receive the letter from the US president that the mission had come to deliver. It was agreed that the reply would arrive three days later, on the 12th of July. And here I have a tricky question for you. Did Perry and his men know the difference between the shogun and the emperor of Japan? The official report of the mission mentions both, and both are called emperor, but the report was written much later, so I wonder if Perry thought his letter would be delivered to the emperor or the shogun.
1: So from what I can gather, Perry and certainly the US diplomatic force understood that there was a difference, but I think they misunderstood who really held power. They, they were under the assumption that the emperor held considerable power, and so everything was addressed to the emperor, but the shogun holds more power, has more actual sway, and the Americans really weren't able to pick up on that, which is a long-standing tradition in American foreign policy up until this point. Constantly, especially with Native Americans, they have a hard time understanding who is actually in charge, and it causes a lot of Motion And it leads, in the case of uh, westward expansion in Native Americans in the United States, um, it leads to unwanted violence. Luckily, their misunderstanding here didn't lead to such bloodshed, but it was still some tone deafness on the part of the Americans.
0: Well, waiting for the answer, the squadron stayed in Uraga, surveying the area and are continuing to refuse any contact with low-ranking officials. It also attracted tourists who came from nearby towns to see the ships and impressed the locals with the utterly alien-looking diving suits the sailors wore while exploring the bay. On the 11th, one of the ships, the Mississippi, moved a little further inland. This sent the Japanese officials into panic, but they could only follow it and watch from a distance. Fortunately, in the evening, Mississippi had returned and anchored with the rest of the squadron. All this time, Abe Masahiro, the other counselors and the daimyo were trying to find an answer to the problem. Honestly, I have no idea what they were thinking. They knew about Perry's arrival way in advance, but they didn't prepare anything better than another please-go-to-Nagasaki answer. This makes me, and not only me, but some... Real researchers, wonder if opening up Japan to foreign relations was not on the agenda from the very beginning. Abeno Masahiro was a well-educated man who became the shogun's counselor at the young age of 25 and a senior counselor at 27. He had read Dutch reports and knew about the opium wars in neighboring China and the industrial revolution that was making ships faster and weapons deadlier He also knew that Japan didn't have much to defend itself. But at the same time, the shogun was very ill and was actually going to die a few days after Perry left. So Abe had to take responsibility for the decision and I think he was not happy about that. So for the time being, the government's main priority was to send the American expedition away. Ideally, they'd reconsider and not come back But even if they did, the bakufu would have time to find a prettier solution. And so Abba orders to receive the president's letter. Then came the long-awaited 12th of July. The so-called governor of Uraga, Kayama, returned with the third round of please go to Nagasaki talks. But after further communication, underlined by the commander's strong desire for friendship and unwillingness to use his state-of-art weapons, the Japanese side promised to let Perry deliver the letter to the emperor's envoy here in Uraga the next morning. To prove the peaceful nature of the mission, Kayama and his interpreters were invited on board. After a tour and many friendly drinks, they made a very good impression on the Americans. Notes from the expedition members said that they were well-mannered, well-educated, and not at all ignorant of the outside world. The next morning, Kayama arrived later than promised. But he had a letter from the emperor in a beautiful box. He wouldn't let anyone touch it. Probably because Perry had previously insisted that he could give a governor a copy of the president's letter, but would only deliver the original himself. Kayama's letter said that Todaizu no Kami, Prince of Izu, would meet admiral – yes, I haven't told you that yet, but the Japanese weren't the only ones using fake titles – to receive the president's letter. The next round of diplomacy followed, and I'd say both sides were pretty good at it. It was decided that the squadron would move closer to shore and the commodore would be accompanied to meeting by as many men as possible to show proper respects to the emperor. In return, Kayama insisted that the imperial envoy would not speak to Perry. He would only receive the letter and leave. This was a wise precaution. Now no one could say that Bakufu was negotiating with foreigners. Finally, it was 14th of July, the day of the meeting, But when the Japanese officials arrived in full regalia to escort Perry and his men to shore, the Americans found it hard not to giggle at their clothes, which were made of luxurious materials, but looked as if they were far too wide and far too short for the wearers. This was quickly forgotten, as the American rowers struggled to keep up with the fast Japanese boatmen. Clearly, both sides tried to impress the other. And while the Americans were not much taken with the Japanese army, which consisted of rather short, slender and beardless soldiers, whom they found rather feminine, they did appreciate attention to details. The Japanese, on the other hand, were surprised to see two tall black guards escorting the Commodore. And as the expedition's official report states, That was exactly the effect they were chosen for. In the background, villagers milled about, jumping up and showing each other to get a better look at the barbarians. The officers' uniforms with their shiny buttons and white epaulets amused them. They had never dreamed that such clothes existed, nor had they ever seen men with such long noses, always brown, blonde or red hair, and their size—the aliens were giants compared to Japanese men, who averaged 155 centimeters in height, almost 15 centimeters shorter than the average American at the time. As for the ceremony itself, nothing of note happened. During the first formal meeting between the U.S. and Japan at Kurihama on 14th of July, Perry presented President Millard Fillmore's letter and a letter of his own with Chinese and Dutch translations. Toda, the prince of Izu, in turn, in complete silence, as he was strictly instructed not to talk to foreigners, presented the letter from the emperor, actually, from the shogun government, which in essence said, thank you for your letter, now go home. Okay, we will, said Perry, but we'll be back. With all four ships, asked one of the translators, Yep, and a few more. Wait for us next spring. With that, the ceremony ended and the Americans were safely returned to their ships. As the official report of the day put it, Japan had broken its own code of selfish exclusiveness to obey the universal law of hospitality. The first American visit to Japan should have ended there, but the Commodore had other plans. Instead of leaving the shores of Japan, the squadron sailed to the Edo Bay to survey the area. Now that was unexpected. Kayama rushed back and tried to persuade the captains that it wasn't the best idea to gain a position right after such a lovely meeting. But it's hard to argue when your friend has far stronger arguments. So the next day the survey boats entered the river and moved inland, attracting a lot of attention. It didn't seem that anyone was afraid of the foreigners. On the contrary, they were a hit until the police came and told everyone to go back to their business. But the sailors spent enough time with the locals to bring back some tobacco and tasty peaches. Tasty enough, I must stress, to be mentioned in the report. On the 17th of July, the squadron finally left Japan. And that's where we say goodbye to you today. Garrett and I will be back next week to talk about Perry's second visit to Japan. If you don't want to wait the whole week, remember that the second part of this episode is already available on my Patreon page. And if you enjoyed the story, check out Garrett's podcast, No Country for History, to learn more about the hidden sides of American history.